Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 16, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Just speaking to the politics of distraction, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be attended, you all, like climate, verifiable voting systems, deferred maintenance of infrastructure. Also, it's been brought to my attention that a lot of people are not aware we have a presidential, federal, and state election uh, primary March 3rd next year. Careful that we're not distracted at our own peril. Now, today's program, plowing right into the headwinds, the moving target of immigration policy, will be my guests Ana Ramirez of Orange County Rapid Response Network and Tim Burns of Orange County Justice Fund. We'll wrap the show with Carissa Macias serving up Gourmet by the Bay, a fundraising plein air experience this Saturday, July 20th at the nearby Newport Bay Conservancy's Interpretive Center. We'll be right back after a short station break with this bounty. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My guests for this largest segment are Ana Ramirez and Tim Burns, who will put all of us in the trenches in the institutional corridors where they've been diligently and intimately involved in the current practices of handling migrants along the border and into the interior. Ana Ramirez is coordinator of the Orange County Rapid Response Network, a unique coalition of service providers, community organizations, law school clinics, attorneys, and community volunteers responding collaboratively and in a community-driven way to increase immigration enforcement affecting Orange County. She's currently working on her master's degree at UC Riverside. Anna, where did you go to school before you're working on this degree now? I went to uh, UCLA for my undergrad, and I did sociology and Chicano Chicano study. Okay, good. I I put that in your bio for the next interview. So, Tim is a volunteer, local activist, and community advocate for universal representation for immigrants facing deportation as a volunteer of Friends of OC Detainees, Orange County Justice Fund. He's an Assembly District Delegate to the California Democratic Party representing the 74th District in Orange County. He taught in public school, worked 20 years in the software industry, and is now putting his all into getting and entering a law school. Tim completed his bachelor's in sociology at UCLA, so we've got a lot of brewing action going on this morning. Tim mm-hmm. joins me in studio while Anna comes to us today from the Scissors of St. Joseph. In, it's in, in the city of Orange, I believe. Welcome mm-hmm. to Ask a Leader, Anna Ramirez and Tim Burns. Thank you, Claude. Thank you. So for a bit of context, I wanted to have you first explain, Anna, how mm-hmm. does the Orange County Rapid Response Network function? Yes. So as you mentioned, Claudia, we are uh, a collective of legal service providers, advocacy groups, and community members responding to immigration enforcement. So what we do as a whole is respond to anybody that is picked up by ICE 
and meaning well, what I mean by that is when someone is detained, we get a call from a community member saying that their loved one got picked up. And so then we have a first responder, which is a volunteer a community member that goes to speak with that family to identify um, when the individual was detained and connect them to the correct resources that they need. If that specific person doesn't have legal representation or an attorney, we try to connect that person to someone that at least is able to do a, a legal consultation and then is able to, um, they will take on the case. But a lot of it is responding to immigration enforcement and verifying immigration presence in the county. So meaning if there's any ICE officers in any part of the county or city. And also we're very much focused on impact litigation, meaning that we as a rapid response will take on a case if it will lead to a policy change or a practice that ICE is using when detaining people. And that is because we know that in terms of being able to create change or systemic change, that is the type of litigation that we have to engage on. So, yeah, that's a little bit of, of what we do and, and what's our purpose. Well, I'm sure uh, anybody who's not underneath a huge boulder is understanding there's a lot of moving targets there's threats, there's gaslighting going on 24-7. What, if anything, is certain it's going, is the status right now? Is there anything that you could say is for sure? I think that what is for sure, as you were mentioning, Claudia, right, the rhetoric that is being pushed out by the, the, the president that is currently um, sitting in the White House is that, right, this narrative of criminality and going against all people, I think that Instilling fear in our communities is part of the agenda that he's been utilizing ever since he took office. And so I think that it's certain that he know we all know as a community where he stands. But I think that regardless of what rhetoric is being pushed out, people have to understand that we all have rights regardless of whatever your status might be. So that is also certain, right, that under the Constitution of the U.S., people have rights regardless of what anybody else would like to tell you. So just as recently as yesterday, then, the uh, United States Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice pushed out a, a brand new policy dealing with where the, the asylum would be processed, that if, if it was mm-hmm. a, a matter of an, a migrant moving through another country prior to arriving to seek asylum at the U.S. border. So I, I'd like for, for both Tim and you to talk about what that changes in the way you're, I mean, it, it's, it, it certainly it's a, there's a tactical aspect of throwing everybody off of what you were sort of, have, you've institutionalized in your grassroots responses, but what, what does that mean to both of you in doing your work? Just Mondays pushing out this, it's a policy. Well, Claudia, I'd say it's serving, I do think, a tactical purpose. I don't think this will stand. I think a lot of what we've seen from this administration in the long run doesn't stand. There are lawsuits Mm -hmm. being filed, but it serves a purpose. uh, You know, it it stirs up uh, racial animus and and sentiments, and I think uh, it, it gets a lot of media exposure, as it well should. Uh, but I don't think in the long run, uh, you know, some of this may linger, but I think in the long run, uh, we'll be more or less back where we started, I would hope, following uh, international law and international agreements that are therefore a part of uh, U.S. law. 
So mm-hmm. I guess I, I'd like for uh, you two to talk about it's we're really not dealing with laws. We're dealing with policies and mm-hmm. they're they're not managing policy of asylum, but they're managing them as though they're detainees. Have let's have you break that down all the way. What the implications are there? Well, I think uh, you're you're right in that policy. Uh, you know, it, a lot of this fall immigration law falls under it, administrative law. Yes, which is a different area than what most of us are used to from the media in terms of criminal and civil law. Uh, my observations sitting in uh, the immigration courts have led me down a path of researching that and talking to a lot of lawyers. And uh, some of the things that I wish more people realized is that uh, the, the immigration courts are not part of an independent judiciary. They are under the executive branch. Uh, when you sit in one of our immigration courts, and anyone can do that, you can walk into our immigration courts and observe these hearings. And, and But if you, you look under the surface a little bit, you start to realize the immigration judge and the ICE lawyer, the immigration or the, the government lawyer, they both report to the same boss. They are both uh, uh, essentially delegates of the attorney general. And, and I think that gets lost in, in the typical narrative that's out there. Anna, did you want to respond in addition to that? No, I think that they, they covered it great. Okay. So... Let's talk about the current practices, and I want for everybody to know what's going on and what their their role could be, and we'll take the mythology out of where people think that they could be effective. So I'd like for, for you to talk about what the, know, knowing your rights the, throughout the processing from people being approached at home at work by, by the ICE agents, so t- Lead us through the steps that are essential. I mean, we're hearing more of them covered in mainstream media, but I I want for you to give us the most salient things listeners need to know that they can share with their connections who are either uh, threatened or who are in a position to respond. So starting with like the the not needing to answer the door and and what kind of paperwork needs to come under the door. Yes, so I think that it's important for people to understand that they don't have to open the door uh, to immigration officers. Um, Anybody, any official, for that matter, that wants to come into a home, they have to present a a warrant, which is an administrative warrant, right, coming from a court and being signed by a judge. Immigration officers will never have that. 99% of the time, they won't. So they know... 99%. Yeah, 99% of the time, they will not have a right to come into someone's home. That's why they use uh, uh, coercion and deceptive tactics to be able to get into people's homes. Because immigration, I know that they can go into people's homes in general, but people don't know that, right? So in terms of not opening the door would be the first one. And also asking for a warrant if there is something that the, that the officers can present. If they can produce that, then the individual does not have have to open the door. In any case that an officer comes to your home and has that administrative warrant saying, we are here to pick up this individual, as I was saying, it has to include the judge signature, the date, and the name of the person that they're going for. And usually if officers have that, they don't even have to ask you to open the door because they just could bar through the door. Um, So not opening the door, asking for the warrant, 
And also, let's say that immigration officers come into your home because someone else let them in. I think that exercising the Fifth Amendment um, under the Constitution, so remaining silent and exercising that right. But people have to vocalize and say, I am exercising the Fifth Amendment and choosing to remain silent until I speak to an attorney. If you are stopped, let's say, outside of your home because you're walking to your car or just walking on the street, people can always use that right, choose to remain silent, and also always ask the officer, whether it's a police or any ICE officer, asking whether you're being detained. That's super important because anybody that stops you will have to tell you why they're stopping you. There has to be a reason why. And if they don't tell you that you're being detained, then you are free to go. So that, that's what they have to say. That, exactly. So what, key things that people can say is, am I being detained? And if the officer tells you no, then ask the question of, am I free to go? And that's when the person can eventually leave. We know that, obviously, on the ground, it doesn't, this doesn't play as easy as it sounds because no. you don't know whether the officer will continue to try to engage in a conversation and we know that they try to do that, but I think that as long as people know the rights that they have and the things that they could say, um, it could, it's always super u- useful in terms of protecting themselves uh, at a time of, of an, uh, a brief stop. Anna and Tim, especially Anna, I'd like for you to give us the very the a really vivid sort of take on how this plays out. It's probably going to be ICE agents maybe outnumbering the person that they're trying to serve there there's that there's they are coming from a position of enormous power a mantle of law enforcement kind of association authority on them so i'm just that there may be every like a whole script of lines that they're using simply to throw somebody off of their care the person's carefully studying what their rights are so there the inordinate asymmetry of that encounter you, you must have a lot to say about that or some, t- uh, some narratives about that. Definitely. I think that it's, it's once again important to remind people, right, not to engage as much in a conversation with an officer because you never know whether it can lead to an actual arrest or detention. So from the get-go, it's super important for people to always ask, right, am I being detained? Am I free to go? Because I, as I had mentioned, if someone is detaining you or arresting you, they have to a reason, give you a reason as right. to why. So in terms of the power dynamic, definitely it is going to be there. But I think that in times, and it's hard to say this, right, because as, as we are both saying, in actuality or in real life, it could be very intimidated, especially if you're outnumbered. So I think people have to try to, 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 to empower themselves and say, Regardless of who these officers are, I as a person still have protections and I have these rights. So um, one of the things is obviously knowing those rights. And another thing that we also recommend for people to do is to have a family preparedness plan. So in any case that, you know, you are approached by an immigration officer and you are detained, at least your family will have something to make sure that they're following up with you. Right. So. Where can I find this this individual that was detained through their name and so on? So I think it's important to have that plan because in a time of crisis, that's when people are responding or trying to collect themselves, and it's really hard. So having that plan and also having at hand, I think, the, the rapid response number because 
that well, number is? Anna, this is a good earlier. time to give the number. Yeah, the number is 714-881-1558. And that's a and 24-7. Yeah. Okay. And it's super, super important for people to know this number because one of our main goals is to verify ICE activity. So in the event that ICE is out in the community and someone calls us saying, you know what, I'm seeing someone that's being questioned on the street and I think that it's ICE, it would call us as a rapid response to send a couple of our, our volunteers to be able to go to that scene and document what's happening. So if there's multiple officers, you know, if you have someone filming you, I think that that creates a different type of behavior from, from the officers that are either questioning or trying to detain or arrest someone. So in terms of what we can do, like I said, is sending volunteers that can be there, disclosing or sharing, shouting, know your rights information to the individual that is being in question, or also just being to document what's happening. Because I, I, the, the power dynamic is very real, but it's important to know what, that there's community support and people that are watching. So it's not just happening and going unnoticed. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Ana Ramirez, coordinator of the Orange County Rapid Response Network, and Tim Burns, local activist and community advocate for universal representation for immigrants facing deportation. We're talking about the essential pieces of knowing your rights when being approached by an ICE officer. And and part of what is the response here that Anna's talking about now is what the upstander role is. Can both of you break down what our role is as upstander? I mean, Anna mentioned a little bit about filming or yelling over the threshold to where the threatened population is, uh, What uh, their, a reiteration of what they may know about their rights. Can you tell us more about what we should know about being an upstander? Well, I'd like to add to what Anna said. Uh, she's with Resilience OC, yes. and you can go to their website, resilienceoc.org. They're also on Facebook, and I've attended some of their workshops, and that's where I first learned of some of what Anna is talking about. And I would encourage other people to check them out and visit some of their workshops. And you learn things like what's the difference between the kind of fake warrants that ICE uses versus a real judicial warrant that's signed by a judge. They'll stand outside a door and say they have a warrant. They'll like they'll have some wave some. Yeah, and they'll say, "Do you have a paperwork. warrant?" And they'll say yes. And if you say, "Well, slide it under the door and let me see it," then you know they sort of him and haw and hesitate. They'll pretend to be the police. They'll wear shirts that say police, and they will tell lies, and they will carry a picture of somebody saying, this is who we're really looking for. Can you help us out? They'll use all kinds of tactics. So what Anna's talking about is very important. I would encourage people to check out those Know Your Rights workshops. Well, and one thing I'm trying to think that to make this even more real-time the, the complications there, that as Jackie Menner, who's on this show recently, was talking about, there's mixed-status households. Does the the green card carrier person, are they, in, if they're in part of that household, are they obligated to present their paperwork? Um, and does that open up the threshold that allows ICE to come in? How does that work? I've seen and heard of and seen witnessed videos uh, of all sorts of skullduggery and tactics that are used to get that door to open. So they will lie to people inside the house and, or they'll, you know, say, hey, we need your help. Come outside. There's somebody's got a flat tire or whatever. They'll use really? all kinds of different tactics. I somebody's think, been maimed. Somebody's uh, been yeah, assaulted. I can probably speak to it better than I can. Yeah. But uh, I've, I've seen such things. Yes. Anna? Not personally witness it, but I, I know they have. 
Yes, definitely. Anna. I think that uh, one of the one of the cases that the rapid response has has worked on in the past was that of, of someone who was in their work and they they got called on their cell phone and told, "Can you come outside? Your car was hit." Right, and so the person comes outside, and it was actually ICE. Um, and so, in terms of the the tactics that ICE is using to get people to come out of us a, a, a place that has protection, so in this case, like a workplace, the work is home, protected. It's definitely yeah, and it happens as as Tim was mentioning. So yeah, it's important for people to to be aware of these things. And oftentimes, right, like what can you do if if you have someone calling you telling you those things? It's it's really scary, definitely. So the so the workplace like home is off. It's off. It depends. Uh, from what I've heard from yeah. from lawyers when it's, I've gone to some of these workshops, including Resilience OC workshops, yes. what I've heard is if you're in a place, part of your workplace, where there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, perhaps a break yes. room, or you're in the lavatory, okay, then then you have you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. If you're out in a publicly visible place, you're at the retail counter, mm-hmm. et cetera, then that's a little bit different. That's different. Exactly. Anna, do people, do you know if employers post the know your rights instructions on the work at the workplace? I think that it will vary by employer and and it's honestly going to take a lot of education because even in protecting uh, their workers, there is a lot of employers that don't have that information accessible to their employees. So in terms of of having it there, I don't know whether they do, but my thought is that they don't, to be honest. Is that on anybody's... uh, and any of the activist organizations uh, thought about fanning out and providing that information or sort of working with human resource saying, hey, you know, it's just, this is legal. You, why don't you consider p- posting this? I mean, is that is that a job somebody could somebody's thinking about doing? Exactly. There is conversations within the rapid response and a couple of other folks to collaborate with um the business council and also uh, the different labor unions in the county to be able to do that type of work. Because I think that especially like moving forward, we have to cover our bases and make sure that folks in the workplace area or in the, in the, in the businesses area know that this is information that they have to know and they have to share with their employees. So there is conversations to, to get started on that type of work. And when you were talking about these encounters with the ICE officials, I know a term to use, ICE officers, that they're if if somebody is documented, do they need to know the name of them, or do they just need to know? They say this many ICE people are here. They're harassing me. They're uh, they're not leaving. This is what they're saying. I mean, what, how much detail does a person need to do to document the encounter? Exactly. I think that it's important to note how many ICE officers were there, what type of attire they were wearing, because uh, as I mentioned a little bit, right, like. ICE will use the best, let's say, police, or at times they will just use regular civilian clothing. So making a note of what type of clothing they were wearing is super important. Also identifying if they were driving in any unmarked vehicles. We know that ICE will just drive on just regular cars, right, like park outside people's homes and wait for people to come out of their home. So in terms of documenting, like I said, number of officers, what type of clothing they were wearing, whether they were driving any just any vehicle, um, and if people can identify like license plate information because that's super important. And I think that those are the the most important things to and, document. And if if there was any type of language 
that was used that was xenophobic or racist. I think that that's important to note as well in terms of documenting what are the practices that ICE is doing on the ground. Oh, so that's that's part of, that's the upstander role is to is assisting in documenting all four of those things you're talking about, all five of those mm-hmm. things. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's let's talk to what are some maybe missteps bystander or upstanders have made or uh, something to help us know n- not to uh, not to go there, not to try that one. Yes, I think that if people are filming, it's obviously important to to make sure that you're filming at an angle that you're exactly looking at the ICE officers and not filming the person that's being affected because. We don't want to put that individual that's already in a vulnerable position and in a worse situation. So filming the ICE agents, also if you are ever told by the ICE officer you're obstructing the, the this um, this encounter that we're, we're doing, it's important for people to maybe take a few steps back and saying, I'm not obstructing with the job that you're conducting, right? So vocalizing that information and also making sure that people don't share the live footage on Facebook Live or any other platform. Don't share once it. again, all this information, it's sensitive to an individual's case. And so in terms of publicizing that information, you have to think twice. So making sure that you focus on the officers, don't do the Facebook Live or any other platform, and making sure that you step back if you're asked to do so. That way you don't become a target yourself as well in so, terms of your own protection. Anna, do, do upstanders have a sort of a possibility of accelerating, the, escalating the encounter and making ICE officers even more hostile or kick into their next other, uh, the, their next level of um, devices? Mm-hmm. I think that that could be a possibility. It's always a risk, but I think that if people take those steps, it's at least important saying, you know, I vocalize this information. And so in terms of my own protection, I expressed it. So I'm just wondering about these encounters. I'm thinking of my own personal feelings when, let's say, I'm going to be approached by a traffic officer. And I just I'm thinking of how my uh, emotional, what my emotional landscape is. And I'm thinking I don't know if either one you could sort of multiply the order of magnitude of the intensity greater with this kind of ice encounter. Well, I think Anna can probably speak to, uh, you know, the things, the the actual encounters and, and the raids and the things with ice. But I'd like to also just add to what she said when in the heat of the moment, um, th- that's difficult. Uh, but for those who are curious about, oh, I have some footage, should I post it? Okay. That would be a good time to contact the folks at Resilience OC, speak to somebody like Anna, because they, they deal with this stuff all the time. So when you have that opportunity to pre-plan or decide what, which way to move. But I'm sure, yes, in the heat of the moment, everyone's intimidated. And sometimes, totally. sometimes the, the most innocent are the most vulnerable. It happens in our criminal justice system as well. You want to cooperate, and that can sometimes open up the door to all sorts of trouble. Well, the asymmetry of difference right. in languages. For, for so, Anna, what do you do when somebody brings you some video footage? We have actually haven't had anybody do that yet to, to the rapid response. But I think what we would do is obviously try to get in contact with the individual if someone was detained and further investigate because we want to make sure that if that individual was taken by ICE, we want to get them the resources that they need, whether that is to that specific individual or a connection to their family. Because in terms of 
you know, connecting people in a moment of crisis is important for us to do the investigative part, but also making sure that we're connecting folks to, to the resources that they need. So it seems inordinately clear that the demands on you are massive. I'd like to know, how do you manage the triage of demands on you, Anna? The, and whether it's, are you directing toward the workplace setting, to households? What? How do you deal with this onslaught? Definitely. That's a, a great question. It's really difficult to say what is a priority because I think everything is a priority. So in terms of, of responding, we obviously uh, respond to what the community reaches out for. So most of the time it's for folks that are seeking information on like, what are the protections when I'm at home or when I'm on, out on the street? We haven't seen so much of the, the workplace level. Really? Okay. But, um, yeah. But in terms of responding, it's always been doing know your rights on your home, the street. We always share information around the workplace because we all obviously consider that important, too. But I think that a, a lot of our work is also um, elevated and, and through the assistance of, of the community volunteers that we have on the ground. I think that if it wasn't for their help, we would be at a much different place because the capacity of, of organizers ourselves it could be limited, right? Like there's only uh, so few of us at least within the rapid response. So the community volunteers that we get their help is, is very much appreciated because they're the ones that are assisting us with, with connecting folks to, to the resources that, that are needed. So um, we're able to do this because of them and I think because of, of the, the support that we receive from our partners as well. And, and to that point, and in preparation, uh, Tim was bringing up the point about how there's such un- untapped talent. So, Tim, here's your here's your pitch to the talent. Mm-hmm. Tap them, will you? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, for me, uh, getting into this was uh, finding out about an organization called Friends of OC Detainees, which was formed about seven years ago. Uh, and that got me into the local jails just as a volunteer visiting ICE detainees. And that opened up. Uh, just really opened up my eyes to what's really going on. And that got me going to their immigration hearings and, and seeing what goes on in those courtrooms and realizing this huge lack of due process. And that just got me deeper and deeper. And it made me appreciate the untapped talent and what we all can do as citizens. People come up to me when they hear me tell my stories and they say, well, but I'm not a lawyer. And I say, well, neither am I. And they say, well, I don't speak Spanish. And I say, well, neither do I. And a lot of the people that I've dealt with in ICE detention are from Africa or Asia, and certainly the, the, the majority are certainly coming out of Latin America, uh, and I don't want to minimize that at all, but there are, there are many layers to this, uh, but there is a lot that the average citizen can do, and what, what Anna was talking about really reminds me, she's talking about we need to hear from citizens, tell us what they're wearing, how many ICE agents, and that just reminds me of the things that I've seen. Okay. We depend so much, and when I say we, I mean friends of OC detainees, a lot of the local legal community who does this kind of pro bono clinic work for immigrants, so depend on anecdotal information coming in from volunteers, family members, community members. It's really been striking to me. The first time I started talking to an ICE detainee and asked him if they had a lawyer and I started reaching out, 
And then eventually, if you're lucky, you find a local clinic lawyer or a pro bono lawyer, and they'll say, oh, thank you for telling me about this case. Now, they know there are ICE detainees in there, but each individual case has to be flagged and brought to somebody's attention, and they're triaging, and their plates are full and whatnot. But what really struck me is there's no systematic mechanism. Uh, somebody with a bar license cannot just simply log into some database and say, show me all the ICE detainees in Orange County. Really? Uh, and that- let's see. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's opaque. It's a black hole. It's truly Kafkaesque. You can't believe how we wow, depend that's important. on, you know, another Wait. anecdote. I was I was delivering some bond checks downtown at the ICE office to help release, to release them. Okay. And that's what we do at the OC Justice Fund, among other things. And this happened to me over a period of weeks where I had information from our volunteer network saying the ICE detainees that we were getting out were going to be released in Santa Ana. And uh, ICE was telling me downtown, no, 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 they're going to be released right here downtown at 10 p.m. And I was telling them very carefully, very gently, not wanting to get on their bad side. You and your super bad dude, (laughs) bad white dude demeanor. Trying to nicely ask, well, you might want to check on that. I'm hearing rumors that they're getting released in Santa Ana. Uh, No, 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 it's downtown. And sure enough, then I get on the phone as soon as I leave the federal building downtown. And I get on the phone with our volunteer network. And we have contacts on the inside with the OC Sheriff's Department. And they said, no, we're going to release this guy tonight here in Santa Ana. And a few weeks later, I'm downtown having the same conversation with a different bond check, and they're still telling me the same thing. And I said, well, you might want to check on that. And by the time I left the office that day, you spend many hours in there to deliver these checks. And that's another story. But the ICE employees were thanking me for telling me where ICE themselves, where they, ICE, was going to release somebody. You're kidding. And it really matters to a family that's coming from Escondido or wherever to come you know, pick up their loved one, whether they're going to Santa Ana or downtown, how they get off work, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this, that's just, in the grand scheme of things, a tiny, tiny slice of the kind of things that are going on daily. So I, I just want to quickly interject, too, where I, I keep hearing stories, Anna and Tim, about the headwinds for everybody involved in repatriating in some fashion, in, in some way here from wherever. The headwinds are so constant and so intense that any gesture, I've been, I've, it's been reported to me, any gesture of a constructive of a humane sort that the it it reduces somebody to an emotional pile of gratitude there there it is such a change to have the headwind stop and one humane gesture come piercing through all of those that the headwinds that they've been experiencing so you're you're both here to tell us there are so many small things people could do and they can work their way up into bigger things Yes. I mean, I've seen it firsthand and people don't realize, I think, the power that they have to bear witness. It's not a huge heroic gesture uh, to to meet uh, an ICE detainee or walk into an immigration court and observe what's going on and to dig a little bit deeper. The, the, I think the real problem, the head, the big headwind that we face is the, the narratives are all wrong and backwards. Uh, it's been framed uh, that immigration is a problem, whereas the fact is immigration has always been the greatest strength of our nation and it is the solution to so many problems but the narratives are completely upside down and backwards and that's there's nothing new about that but without changing public sentiment and i think we all have a role in that we're just going to be continuing to fight these battles it's a long-term stoking the headwinds right so we have to get the word out and in fact i want to make a shout out to uh, uh there's a criminologist right here on this campus at uci sharis kubrin who does a tremendous job uh, doing what she calls myth-busting, 
She has studied for years the question, is there a correlation between immigration and crime? And right. to the extent that there is sometimes a correlation, it's a negative correlation. It's an inverse correlation. If you want less crime, you want more immigration. But try to explain that to the average person. Well, it's What's, too much nuance for yeah, this, this vitriol that's going on here. Well, the training opportunities, people can reach your organizations and find out where they can plug in. I, I, we'll, we'll say that. But I, I want for both of you, somewhat briefly, to speak to how you avoid paralysis in the immensity of this situation. Anna? I think that it's it's always important to, to talk to the community. Um, and I, I, I personally always feel that I say that there's no time to, at least for myself, right, like not to, to be fearful and, and to not let all this rhetoric and all these, like, you know, the tensions that happen every day and mobilize the, the work that I do or myself. So I always try to keep my myself grounded by knowing, you know, like, this is fighting for, like, a better cause. And also there's, like, a whole community that we're responding to. And I'm, I'm, I'm not alone. So I think that it's always good to connect with other folks, with friends, with this community in general to say, you know what, well, we have to keep doing this um, because we deserve better. And so that that's at least what I try to to do with myself personally. Thank you, Anna. What about you, Tim? Yeah, I'd say well, the the Thank the you. small victories that happen uh, make it all worthwhile. When you see somebody even getting out on bond while their case continues is a bit of a victory. When you see somebody get asylum, which happens all too infrequently, I think there are way more deserving people deserving of getting asylum than who actually get it. Uh, but seeing those victories uh, help get us through the, the rougher times where we see the opposite happen. So, you know, the, and uh, yes, and as Anna said, uh, there are so many people in this fight, and we're really blessed here in Orange County that we have a number of legal clinics. We have the Public Law Center. We have the UCI Immigrant Rights Clinic. We have a lot of uh, nonprofits like Resilience OC and others. So there is a network, and there are people that we can talk to and rely on and kind of boost each other when times are tough. Well, I simply want to take a moment just to honor what both of you uh, continue to do here. And thank you, Anna and Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time today. My guests were Anna Ramirez, coordinator of the Orange County Rapid Response Network, and Tim Burns, a local activist and community advocate for universal representation for immigrants facing deportation. We'll return after a station break with Carissa Macias of the Newport Bay Conservancy, serving up Gourmet by the Bay this Saturday. Thanks, everyone, for staying tuned. El hielo anda suelto por esas calles. Nunca se sabe cuándo nos va Thank you for staying tuned. That was Santa Cecilia, El Hielo, or the or Ice. That's a direct translation of Spanish. Welcome back to the show now with some lighter fare. I really wanted to put this taste in everybody's mouth. It's worthy fare all the same. My next guest is Carissa Macias, Program Coordinator for the Newport Bay Conservancy. 
Serving Up Gourmet by the Bay, a fundraising plein air dining experience this Saturday, July 20th at the nearby Newport Conservancy's Interpretive Center. Originally from Ventura County and coming from a very environmentally minded family, Chris was part of a school clubs like the Kids Save the Earth Club and the Ecology Club in elementary school, in which, uh, which had a profound effect on how she views the environment and the importance of protecting wildlife and conserving natural resources. She attended Cal State Long Beach to graduate with her Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology. After graduating, Chris went on to work for the California State Parks in Malibu, not a bad gig, and Carpentria as mm-hmm. a parks interpretive specialist, designing and leading junior ranger programs, nature walks, campfire programs, tide pool tours, and special events. After relocating back to Long Beach in 2011, she used her education background to provide programs to Newport Landing, whale watching, and most recently for the Girl Scouts of Greater L.A. Carissa, as programs coordinator, brings with her a diverse uh, background in scientific and outdoor programming. She comes to us today from her corner office at the Conservancy. Welcome to Ask the Leader, Carissa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us what the purpose of this fundraising effort is about, this, the students that are going to be benefiting from this lovely fundraiser you're doing on this Saturday. Absolutely. So we here at the Newport Bay Conservancy have been doing educational programs here in the Bay for uh, about 50 years. It started um, with a tour called the Friends Tour way back in 1968 uh, with some neighbors and friends of the Bay that uh, we're trying to rally support to help protect it and started with this tour to bring in uh, friends and neighbors to come and learn about the bay. Since then, we have been doing all kinds of different programs uh, from kayak tours on the weekends to elementary school tours here at the Peter and Mary Muth Center. Uh, we do high school and college tours out on the water with our outrigger boats that we uh, use from the Newport Aquatic Center. Um, we have weekend hikes and tours, all kinds of different uh, educational programs. And what we will be doing this weekend for the Corme by the Bay event is raising money to help support those educational programs, um, mainly our uh, kayak tours, elementary school tours, and one of our biggest new projects, which is called FIN, Fostering Interest in Nature, which is a program that we are doing with the city of Newport Beach uh, to bring in Title I students from low-income or at-risk elementary schools that are in fifth grade out to the bay for three nights and four days to experience a nature and outdoor science science camp uh, experience. So let's talk about what uh, Chef Brian, is it Husky? Yes, Chef Brian Husky. Um, he is the owner of the Tackle Box restaurant. He has two locations, one in Corona Del Mar and one in Costa Mesa. Uh, and he's also a previous Top Chef contestant. And, oh, my gosh, the food he makes is amazing. And so it's a, it's it's very intentional what you're doing mm-hmm. with the resources you're raising from the participants as well as providing a message about food. Exactly. So it's it's a, a culinary tour in a sense. So he is crafting a, a menu that is inspired by the bay and the local plants and the animals that live here that would also be edible. Um, and so he's crafted this really unique menu for us. Um, so it's a learning experience and a culinary experience. And 
Give us the particulars, what to uh, expect, the timing. It's uh, on the Saturday, 6 till 9. Absolutely. Tell us wh- so what's going to happen. 9 p.m. Um, it is going to be kind of a sunset dinner overlooking the bay. Um, mm. We will have a silent auction, which it, we have all kinds of great prizes that have been donated from local businesses and uh, services. There will be musical entertainment, uh, wine tasting, we will also have some educational sunset walks by some of our naturalists from here at the Conservancy and just a lot of really good networking and laughing and some fun times learning about the Bay and enjoying some good food with good friends. Wonderful. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Carissa Macias. She's a program coordinator serving up Gourmet by the Bay, a fundraising dinner this Saturday, July 20th at the nearby Newport Conservancy's Interpretive Center. And exactly, I mean, parking is free, folks, over there. Tell us exactly where you want everybody to join you. Sure. So you can register for the event on Eventbrite. You can also go to our website. It's newportbay.org, and you can uh, register from our homepage uh, through Eventbrite. Uh, The event is Gourmet by the Bay. And uh, once you arrive, it starts at 6 o'clock, but you, there will be free parking. And then you'll come to the Peter and Mary Moose Interpretive Center uh, off of University and Irvine uh, Avenue and join us for an hour of appetizers and drinks before dinner is served around 7 p.m. And uh, ticket sales are brisk, but you always have room available at the your inn. Correct, yes. Uh, you can register online, and we'd like to get that just so we have a head count. But if you happen to come last minute, we will accept uh, walk-up guests as well. So I, I just think sometimes it's cooler to not just to give you the heads up, but at planning ahead gives people a chance to enjoy the anticipation of such a lovely sunset setting for dinner. Absolutely, yes. And the smell, the smell of salty air, I think, does things for appetites, too. That, too. (laughs) Well, I wish you well. I'm going to make my, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to head over there. I'm trying to figure out who's going to join me. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) I want to thank you, Carissa, for taking the time and good luck on your event. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanking you. I want to thank Carissa for uh, taking the time today. And she is the program coordinator for the Newport Bay Conservancy, serving up this wonderful dinner fundraiser on Saturday, July 20th. So next week, I'm going to have on Democratic National Chairman Tom Perez. And in the second segment, Kaylee Levitt is a local activist with Zero Waste Collective. We're going to challenge each other how we're paring it down in our consumption. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone for listening.